On behalf of uh, my family, I want to thank our church, Grace Point, for really helping our family as we celebrated uh, my mom's life and her uh, at graduation and the ultimate upgrade to heaven. And so we had a service here. And I'm so glad that um, a couple years ago, we put a lot of investment into our online um, feed and online presence and platform and hundreds of uh, people around the country were able to watch yesterday's service um, because of that, that tool that's so effective. So on behalf of my family, some of them are here today, um, I just want to say thank you, Grace, for, for loving our family through this, through this process. We uh, started last week this uh, series, a different series called uh, Secret Baggage, secret baggage. Baggage, we all have baggage. What is it? It's unresolved issues in our life. We have things, we just don't deal with it. We try to stuff it, hide it, ignore it, deny it. That's why it's called secret baggage. But those who know us, love us, live with us, work with us, it's not a secret to them. They know we have issues that we have yet to resolve. And so uh, we put this in book form in July, and it's available, uh, you know, you purchase on our church site on resources or, or uh, in, in your program, there's a QR code if you like. Uh, the purpose of this is not uh, making any money. Trust me, trust me, you don't write books to make money. Uh, you actually lose money most of the time. But uh, it, it's really, my passion is that, that so many people who are uh, really in bondage to their baggage. It is, they've drug it around their life. They carried it into their marriage. They drug it down the aisle. They brought it into their first home, their apartment, and they're passing it on to their kids. They're living in bondage to their baggage. And the whole point is pointing them to Jesus, pointing them to Scripture, pointing them to the hope that we just sung about so that you can have freedom to live the, you know, the life that God has given us. Jesus said, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. And so, so, so many of us in this room have trusted Christ. We've had a, a wave of new believers coming to Christ, uh, salvation. And, and Satan can't keep you out of heaven. But he's going to bring bondage and hell on earth at anything and use anything possible so that you do not live the an abundant life that God would want you to live. We started last week with generational sin, baggage of generational sin. That is any sinful attitude, belief, or action, belief, behavior, or habits that we are imitating from our parents. We're imitating our parents. We saw them with sinful attitudes, actions, beliefs, behaviors, habits. We watched them. We caught what they were modeling for us, and now we're doing the same things. And if we're not careful, we'll pass it on to the next generation. So we talked about that last week, and just a lot of feedback uh, last week and the last couple services from last week. They're like, whoa, you were talking to me. I need to deal with it. I'm like, yes, deal with it so that you can break the cycle of generational sin. Now, what we're going to talk about today affects more people than you may realize, and most people don't think that's a baggage, but it is. It has devastating consequences. What we're going to talk about today is the whole issue of enablement, enabling. This is what 
enabling is, is that when we allow irresponsible behavior from someone we love, we allow it, and then rescue them from any accountability or consequences they deserve. That we allow irresponsible behavior, and then we rescue them, protect them, you know, put up barriers so that they don't get hurt, that they don't feel the weight of their consequences of their choices. And so here's the challenge. But we're trying to help them because we love them. We want to help them because we care about them. And we, yes, we may love them, care about them, but we're actually hurting them. We are placing them in bondage, and when we enable somebody, we place ourselves in bondage Two, now this happens in any relationship. Enablement happens in any relationship, friend to friend, peer to peer, adult child with adult parents, sibling to sibling, bosses with employees, but most of the time it shows up in parenting. And if it, it takes place in parenting, guess where it also shows up? In grandparenting. It's a whole new world I'm living in now as a papa. You know, and, and so if we're not careful, we're going to, because we care, because we love them so much, and that prob- that's probably too true, we allow irresponsible behavior and we rescue them from feeling the weight of the consequences that they deserve. So this applies to a lot of us in this room, maybe even online as well. Here's a central point if you're taking notes, is this. When we enable, our irresponsibility will eventually become someone else's responsibility. Our irresponsibility will eventually become someone else's responsibility. Uh, take the parenting example. When parents are irresponsible with the responsibility that God has given them to lead, guide, and direct, and discipline, when they're irresponsible with that, it's because we want our kids to like us. We want to be best friends. You're in big trouble. You're in for a painful experience if that's your mindset and that's your parenting philosophy. So when parents are irresponsible with that, someone will eventually have to be responsible because you are irresponsible. Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a boss, you know, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's the police, or maybe it's a prison warden. If we are irresponsible, it'll eventually become someone else's responsibility. Maybe you have seen this and know this, but the truth of the matter is, we have an American culture of enablement. No one wants anybody to get in trouble. No one wants any punishment. That's too mean. No one wants any accountability. There's the blame game, the shift game, all over the place. I would just love, I'm just going off script here, which is always dangerous, makes my wife nervous. I would love to see in my lifetime irresponsible politicians facing accountability. Am I alone in that, all right? It is so frustrating. But that is everywhere in our 
culture. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple examples in Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, there, there's a whole uh, line of prophets in the Old Testament, and this man named Eli was the, the second to last uh, prophet, but also Eli was the high priest of Israel. Very godly man. He loved God and the things of God. But he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He had two sons that were completely out of control. They did whatever they want, whenever they wanted to do it. They faced no consequences for their actions. They had a horrible but accurate reputation. And Eli allowed it. He allowed it. Look at verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant, that's often their, their children and other people, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in hand while the meat was being boiled. And they would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, whatever the, whatever the, the prong caught, the meat. Um, I lost my place here. Uh, the priest would, would take for himself, like, look what I got. This is, for, this is, this is part of my, my meal for me and my, my family. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Th- let me tell you how these two sons treated people. But even before the fat was burned, the priest servant, talking about Hophni and Phinehas, would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Give me the raw meat. The person said, well, well, let the fat be burned first and take whatever you want. The servant would answer, no, hand it over. If you don't, I will take it by force. And this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Jump over to verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Eli said to his sons, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may uh, mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's report. And the end of the story is the Lord's will was to put them to death. Eli was irresponsible as a parent. He was irresponsible as a high priest. See, he he had the power and he had the authority to fire his sons and remove them from the priesthood. He said, you're no longer priests anymore. Yeah, but dad, we're supposed to, no, you are not taking God's, you know, you know, law and the worship and the temple and all the sacrifice and all that sort of stuff. You're not taking it seriously. You're doing it selfishly. You're ripping off people. You're threatening people, let alone you're sleeping with the, the servant women in the temple. So he rebuked them. 
but did nothing. All talk, no action. So what he was teaching his sons, there's no consequences. Do whatever the heck you want. There will be no consequences. And when any human being, it doesn't matter who we are, if we grow up and we are shielded from consequences, we'll just keep doing stupidity and then increase it like on steroids. And that's what Eli was allowing. He was not even understanding how people were perceiving him as a high priest. When there's, you know, when leadership just allows, you know, whatever to go on, I don't care if it's on a team or a business or a family or the priest in the temple, people are not going to respect that. So God sent a man of God to confront Eli. Didn't send him to confront his sons. God sent a man of God to confront Eli. And this is what God, through this man of God, said to Eli. He says, why do you honor your sons more than me? That's what's going on here. God's going, you're placing a higher, you know, higher, you know, just value on your sons, not me. Now, it is very natural when that little bundle of sin comes home from the hospital to look at it, just fall in love with it. I, 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 we're blessed to have all three of my daughters here, but I remember when, when Ashley came home and, and I got a new title of dad. You know, I was like, it was like overwhelming. And I just little, you know, it was like, Obviously, there's, there's no sin here. And then they're crying, crying, crying. They're like, obviously, you got that from your mother. Sinner, sinner, sinner. And we love them. And if we are not careful, this happens a lot, we will elevate our children above God. And we will honor them above following God. Now, if you're new to parenting, oh, please hear me. Hear my heart. Your goal as a parent is not to be their friend. If that happens in their 20s or 30s, that's gravy. We are there to mold them, shape them, and, and teach them character. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to teach them about Jesus and God's word. And, and that there are boundaries. There are consequences. Not to be a mean parent but to actually be a parent, a parent. Now, it's easy to take these little kids and then think, well, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want, to, I don't want them to feel the pain of the consequences. Whew, man, you are just asking for trouble, and you're going to hurt them. You're going to harm them from life, from reality. Jump back to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. God said, I got to so, fix this problem. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end, for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about his sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. 
Therefore I spoke to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned by the sacrifice or offering. God held Eli responsible. Now they, his sons, God, God allowed the Philistines to attack and people freaked out. They were losing. God's blessing had been pulled back. The, the people panicked. They went to Hophni Phinehas and said, okay, we need, we need, we need God. And, and God was like, I'm not blessing. Uh, and so they said, well, give us, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the Indiana Jones Ark of the Covenant. And, and they, Hophni Phinehas brought that into the battle, thinking it was like, like some magic, you know, charm. And God was going to bless because we got the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines destroyed the army, took the Ark of the Covenant captive, into captivity. And Eli heard it, and he heard that the, the, the battle was lost, his sons died, and he heard that the Ark of the Covenant was down in the hands of their enemies. He had a heart attack and died. He's a man of God, and his legacy was that he was an enabling father. Now, the king of enabling in Scripture may surprise you, some of you, if you're new to Bible study. The king of enabling in Scripture was David, a man after God's own heart. See, after Eli died, a young prophet named Samuel took the position of prophet, and, and then the people were crying, we want a king, we want a king like everybody else. So he gave him Saul, and Saul was an apathetic, lukewarm king, and and then God said, I need, I need a king that's going to follow me and my decrees. So Samuel anointed a teenage shepherd boy. And 15 years later, David took the throne. And he was a godly man. He was a worshiper. He was a warrior. I mean, he, he was a man's man, but also worship, which I think godly men worship. It's, they're not afraid to. And David wrote psalms and songs that are still being sung today. But when it came to being a father, David failed. His oldest son sexually assaulted his stepsister. And David heard about it, was grieved about it, and did nothing. David's second son, Absalom, saw the hurt that his stepsister went through, saw the shame, saw the pain, saw his dad doing nothing, and the root of bitterness got into his heart, and he began to hate his father. And that built up and up until he led a coup against David. The people died. Absalom ended up dying. All because of David was enabling his son. It did, he was protecting his son, his firstborn, from the consequences of his choices. Near the end of David's life, a sad verse of scripture, again, highlights David being irresponsible with his responsibility as a father. He's really nearing death. He had already said, Solomon's going to uh, follow me on the throne. And it says this in 1 Kings, now Adonijah, that's another son of his, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. And this parenthesis is so sad, describing David says his father, David, had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave like you do? Now let's take a closer look at never rebuked him. In, in the Hebrew, uh, it, it means this. David never caused his son 
pain. Now, this is not talking about abuse. This is not talking about discipline that's abusive. It means he never allowed his son, and all, really all the sons, to feel the pain of consequences. And the Hebrew is also very, very descriptive. He never shaped, fashioned, or formed him into shape. He never parented. He had the title, but did nothing with it. So yeah, here's a man of God. Again, you lo- he loved God, worshiped God, but when it came to his responsibility as a father, he was irresponsible. And inevitably, somebody else had to pick up and be responsible for David's irresponsibility. And people died because of the choices that David made. So why do, why do people enable? Why do spouses enable their spouse? Why, why do friends enable their spouse? Like they see a friend that they say they care for just making some stupid choices and they never speak up. They never confront them. It's like, man, what are you doing? Why do parents and even grandparents enable? I think a lot of times they, they, their emotion trumps their responsibility. Their, 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 their emotion trumps it. They, they see the path they're on. I'm like, man, if I, if I confront, if I can make, if I confront that, uh, that that's going to be, that's going to be hard and it's going to be painful. And I see them going on the path that they're going to get fired. They're going to get fired. But you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. And they're like, they, they've abandoned their responsibility as a good friend to say, dude, what? Why are you doing this? Knock it off. Their emotion of like, I'm, I, I, because I care for them, trumps their responsibility. As parents, we want to protect them from consequences. They're going to get hurt. They're going to get laid off. They're going to go to jail. But my emotion is trumping that. Another reason why people enable is they choose short-term relief over long-term health. Boy, if I confront them, if I discipline my child, it's going to be hard. They're going to get mad at me. So I'm going to, I'm going to choose short-term relief instead of long-term health. Yeah, you can take a little relief now, but the cost, the price tag is just going to continue to escalate. And also people enable because of a self-conscious denial, like, well, it's not that bad. They're, they're, but they have a good heart. Yeah, but they're making stupid choices all the time. Yeah, but, but they're not that bad. And all, all their friends are going, oh, yes, they are. Or, or subconscious guilt, like, man, I have enabled and it's gone out of hand, but I can't really do anything now. Let me show you some signs of enablement. Like, oh, we've got no enablement in our family. Let me show you some signs of enablement. This first one is so true. The responsible one is miserable. The irresponsible one is not. The parents all freaking out and thinking, man, how am I, how am I gonna pay for that, their ticket, you know, their speeding ticket, and I gotta move money, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. And they're all miserable inside because they're picking up a mess but the irresponsible, their life's good. They're not feeling any pain. That's a, a healthy sign, a very, like a flashing sign of enablement's going on. Another sign of enablement, makes no sense on the surface, but it's a reality, is that uh, ungratefulness 
is going to be there from the one being enabled. You would think, wait a second, they're doing all these things for me, man. They're, they're paying for this, and they're covering for this, and they're taking the grief. I should be grateful, but no, no, no. We are teaching the ones we are enabling, we're teaching them that they deserve being taken care of. They, it's owed to them. So whenever, whenever anybody thinks something is owed to them, there's ungratefulness. Why should I be grateful for something I deserve? Another sign of enablement is resentment. That the one enabling is resentful to the one they keep having to bail out. Other people are resentful toward the enabler. Why do they keep bailing them out? And even the one keep bailing out is resentful for the one enabling them. Again, it makes no sense, but that's the pattern. Pattern. So what do we do? First of all, first step, right, is recognition. If you've got a problem, you've got to recognize that you have a problem. You've got to recognize that all my care, all my love, all my protection and trying to protect them from, from harm is not helping them. It's actually harming them. Once you get to that understanding that what I'm doing or not doing, I'm not allowing consequences, I'm actually harming my spouse, I'm harming my sibling, I'm harming my, harming my son or, or, or granddaughter. We've got to acknowledge it. I thought I'd have a quote from my mom this weekend, I think it's fitting. My mom said lots of things. Most of them I agreed with. Well, my mom said this to me one day, and I had to repeat it three times so I could write it down. She said this. Sometimes God has to unfix what we are trying to fix so he can fix what needs to be fixed. Did I lose anybody? No, this is my mom speaking. Sometimes God has to unfix what we're trying to fix so he can fix what, this, what needs to be fixed. We think we're helping God. God says, you're just making it worse. i got to undo what you're doing so I can do what needs to be done. See, one of God's avenues for corrective behavior, one of God's avenues, one of God's tools, is called consequences. And when we remove the consequences, we are placing ourselves in God's position. And it only gets worse and makes things harder. As I was nearing the end of my youth ministry uh, career, my last church was in, um, in Fullerton, EV Free Fullerton, in a large group. And on Wednesday nights, we had hundreds of kids coming in. But we had a group of teenagers that rarely came into the lobby and came into the amphitheater. They were on the side uh, of, of the drop-off area, and they got a title. That whole area, the group of kids got a title that parents were frustrated. They call it the smoker's ministry. It's because Orange County parents are dropping off kids that can see smoke around the corner as kids were lighting up. Most of about 30 kids, they, they, most of them were on the streets. They had run away. They were on drugs. But I had a team of people who went through hell and back when they were young, found Jesus, and I had a group of adults 
who would love on those, on those kids. And I, again, I had parents coming up to me at parent meetings going, when are you going to kick them out? When are you going to stop this smoker's ministry? I said, not as long as I'm here. Because some of them are finding Jesus. That, that is reaching to the, the, you know, out to the lost and the lonely and, the, and, and, and on the sides of life. And had, had a handful of, of people that just, they just loved. And we did a couple things on Wednesday night that some of those kids actually came and went in. And the, the, all the leaders were like, oh, oh, my, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And then we actually got a couple of them to go to Hume Lake Camp and got saved. But one Wednesday night, I went, I went to there just to encourage the leaders and thank them for giving up their time and, and, and effort. So I went and talked to this, this one. She was probably about 24 years old, 25, really sharp-looking uh, leader. And I said, so, so why do you serve? Why do you, why do you help with these kids? Why do, you, why do you love on them? And she told me her story. And the book, I refer to her name, name as Sarah. That's not her real name. But I felt better just to read her story so I get it all accurate. She said this to me. She goes, I grew up in this church, and I came from a wonderful Christian family. When I was a teenager, I started hanging around the wrong friends and soon became one who ex- was experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Over time, I slowly withdrew from my church friends and church and eventually God. My new friends were everything to me, so I didn't care. Slowly, I found myself addicted to drugs, which drove me deeper into the drug culture, and my friends kept pushing me deeper down a dark hole. When I would hit bottom, I would always come home, and my parents would let me stay there while I recovered. There was always plenty of food, a warm bed, and my mom and dad. They would plead with me and beg and and reason with me to get help. But each time I would refuse and eventually head out for some more fun with my friends. Sometimes I didn't return home for weeks at a time. Many nights I wouldn't know where I was sleeping. I would wake up clueless about what happened that night. My drug addiction worsened. So I started stealing to pay for my hits. The same pattern would happen. I would hit bottom, come home, enjoy a warm bed and loving parents, and head back out again. But now, I started stealing cash and jewelry from my parents. When confronted by them, I lied right to their faces. I was getting more and more defiant, more verbally abusive toward them, and completely out of control. They cried more, pleaded harder, and I would just spit back in their face with my attitude, language, and actions. Because I knew no matter what I did, my parents would always welcome me back home. Of course they would. They're my parents. One day, after angrily yelling at my parents, I slammed the door as I headed out to go back with my friends and fun. This time I stayed away longer, went deeper than ever before. I eventually Uh, stumbled home, arriving in the early morning hours. I put my key in the front door, and it didn't work. I thought I was at the wrong house, so I double-checked, and my parents' car was in the driveway. I tried my key again, no luck. Started pounding on the door in anger. How dare they change the locks on me? I'm their daughter, for goodness sake. But after a few minutes, the curtains by the front door slowly pulled back, and I saw my mom. My dad peeking out. I yelled at them to open the door. And what they said next shocked me. They told me I had to leave, that I was no longer welcome. 
until I got clean. I exploded. I cussed them out and told them how much I hated them. I was glad when I saw them crying. It served them right. As I stomped away deep down, I knew they loved me. Deep down, I knew they were right. But I also knew how deeply I had just hurt them. But in my anger, I stuffed those feelings and stormed off. Without the comfort of home, I crashed hard, really hard. My safety net was gone. What my parents did to me did hurt me. But now, parents listen to this, but now I consider it the best thing they ever did for me. When they stopped enabling me, I always welcomed me home. They forced me to get the help I needed. It took some time, but eventually I came home clean and healthy and free again. It still kills me to think how much I hurt them. I hurt the sweetest, most loving parents a daughter could ever have. But I am so grateful they did what was so incredibly hard for them to do. I am not sure I would be alive today if they hadn't locked me out that night. And she said, this is why I reach out to these kids, because I was one of them. Let me talk briefly as we wrap up to the enabled. Maybe you are the one being enabled. What I'm about to say is direct, but with a heart of love. If you are the one being enabled, first thing I would say this, start taking responsibility for your life, your actions, and your attitude. You gotta start taking responsibility for it. You see, Maturity can be summed up in one word. Maturity can be summed up in one word. Responsible. And people in your life may be pretending that they respect you, but let me be honest with you, they do not. They see your irresponsible behavior and keep being bailed out. If you want to take the baggage of being enabled away and unpack it and leave it there, Start taking responsibility. And the second point is this, is stop playing the victim. And the, but you've been trained. It's everybody else's fault. It's the teacher's fault I got a bad grade. It's the coach's fault I got kicked off the team. It's, it's the Navy's fault for kicking me out. It's this fault. This, no, stop being the victim. Or you're going to carry around the baggage of being enabled for the rest of your life. Let me talk to those who are enabling. What I'm about to say is direct, but trust me, it's with the heart of love. First thing is this. Stop it. Stop it, S-T-O-P. Right? Stop it. Allow consequences to do their job. Allow God to do the fixing that he needs to fix. Stop undoing what God's trying to do. One of his tools is consequences. You cross a boundary, there's pain. Not that you're being mean, that's not, not mean that you're not loving or caring, but you enabling them is hurting them. It's hindering their maturity. Now this, it starts so innocently. 
when the kids are young and the, to- the toy box is out in the front room and they walk over or they waddle over and they pick out toy after toy and they play with them and pretty soon your whole living room is full of toys. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? And then you say, you need to put your toys away. And they walk away. And the seeds of enablement in a parent was like, well, you know, I'll just pick them up. You know, I'll just faster. It's just easier. It's just, I'm tired. And pick them up, pick them up. Stop it. But they're so small. Exactly. That's when training needs to really happen. I love you girls. <laughs> but when they were super small, toys everywhere, mom or dad would say, pick up your toys. And they would just kind of disappear. So then we warned them. I warned them. I said, if you do that again, your toys are magically going to disappear. And so they were like, whatever. And so they played and put them away when they're told to, and they went off. So dad pulled out the magic black trash bag. This toy's now mine. That toy's my mind. This one's disappearing. This stuffed animal is no longer. Packed it up. They had no clue. Put it away. They come back. Where's my toy? Gone. Where, where's my stuffed animal, my stuffed little thing? Gone. I didn't say dead. I wanted to say it. <laughs> Gone. Why? I said, because what did mom and daddy tell you? Oh, you told me to put your toys back. They're gone. So it lasted several weeks. And then slowly, once they started... Meaning, they understood that we meant what we said. They started putting their own toys back. I, my figure is that if they can... Pick them up and play with them. They're old enough to put them back. Thank you. Oh, I saw parents, man. That was a lot of amens for parents. <laughs> Maybe grandparents. So then I magically put, you know, put them back, and they're, oh, I say it again. Yes. Do you want to lose it again? No, no. What are you supposed to do? Put them back. Start small. The second thing is to parents who enable or people who enable is that expect it to get worse. You stop it, and they're, they're going to get mad. Expect it, because you've been enabling them. It's going to get worse. So if you start enabling when they're little kids, then they become middle school or high schoolers, and then you're not helping them with their homework. You're starting to do the homework. You're starting to do the project. But I don't want them to get a bad grade, because if they get a bad grade, they get kicked off the team. Exactly. Let them earn their grades. Help them, yes. Don't do it for them. But if you stop doing it, because you've been doing it, like, what, mom, it's going to get worse. Because you're teaching them that there are consequences. And last, last I say this, allow the hurt to help. Allow the hurt to help. When you ground them for a week, and after, the, after two days, they, coming, they come back to you singing, I surrender all, and tears are coming down them. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Go, thank you. I forgive you. I'm, I'm off being grounded. No, you got five more days. But the, our, our emotions kick in. Well, you know, their hearts turn. They could be manipulating you. They have PhDs in that. If you ground them for a week, let it be a week. They get older, they, you know, they're having a hard time managing money, and you help them out. Finally, you say, okay, I'm going to loan you $300, but you're going to pay me back. And they pay you $150, $200 bucks back, and then you call it off. Stop it. Let them pay all of it back. Let the pain help them. 
God puts boundaries and consequences there to help people to mature, grow, and become responsible. I'll close with this simple story. A guy was walking out of his motel in the morning, reading the paper. He was so focused on the paper. He got out the door, didn't, didn't really pay attention. He, he turned left. He was still reading. He didn't see the cones. He didn't see the jacked up sidewalk in the hole. And he went right into the hole and bloods and bruises and scrapes and all that. And he was like, Next morning, he's reading the paper again. He goes out the doors. He turns left, sees the hole. And still goes and falls into it. And there's more bleeding, more bruising. Third day, he's reading the news. He's going out of the door. He stops, looks to his left, sees the hole, walks across the street, then turns left, and he never falls into the hole. Smart person. How do we learn? That hurt. I don't think I'll do that again. We take away the hurt. God's just going to have to increase the hurt to get their attention. When we enable, our irresponsibility will eventually lead to someone else taking responsibility. And trust me, trust me, trust me. When God does it, when God takes responsibility, he does a thorough job. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know who's out there listening and all their issues, but I know that it's an it's a epidemic in our country of enabling. And we're seeing the results and the fruit of that. Lord, I pray that we would look at even godly, godly priests, a godly king. He, they loved you, but they chose to enable their kids. And the legacy and the pain and even death resulted God, you have always used, starting in the Garden of Eden, consequences and pain and hurt for sin and bad choices. Not to be a mean God, but to lovingly want to guide people in the, in the steps and the way they should go so they become mature and responsible. Lord, help us to not drag the baggage of enabling around any longer. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you are a guest today, um, we have a gift for you at guest services. We'd love for you to swing by there. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. May God bless you today. <clears throat>